So Hebrews chapter number 7, we'll start reading in verse number 1. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they, came, they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted for them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without, uh, without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them, of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Father, we ask that you would bless now the reading of your word. And Father, I know that there are passages of Scripture that can oftentimes be difficult to digest. And Father, I pray that you would speak through me as I try my best, Lord, to unfold what your word has to teach us in this passage. So, Father, do what only you can do, and that is speak to the hearts and the minds and the lives of your people. We'll be careful to praise you for that, Lord, for it's in your Son's name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It's important uh, to note a few things. You can quickly tell a church's view of Scripture based on the proclamation of Scripture. Uh, a church that preaches very little thinks very little of Scripture. Uh, a church that preaches very highly on the Word of God thinks very highly of the Word of God. But not only that, but you can also see how they value not only the inerrancy of Scripture, but the sufficiency and completeness of Scripture. Um, it, here at Liberty Bible, we have a long tradition of putting a majority emphasis on the Word of God. The, the Word of God is preeminent. It is what we, uh, we draw all of our belief from. We don't take uh, what Mama said. We take what God said. We don't take what, the, what the, uh, uh, the former generation taught. We take what God's Word teaches. And this is where we, we stand firm. 
Now, there are many times when we go through the Word of God and we come to passages that might be about as dry as cracker juice. I don't know if you've ever read a passage like that. Maybe you're more spiritual than I am to where you read through the book of Numbers and can't wait to read another genealogy. Me, I'm an odd duck. I understand that. I, one of my favorite books of the Bible is the book of Leviticus, where the majority of, the, of individuals, they get in their daily Bible reading plan to the book of Leviticus and say, oh, dear Lord, give me strength as I make my way through. Here's the problem, though. We have to remember that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And all of it is profitable. And so these difficult portions of Scripture ought not to be a a speed bump in our road to growth, but they ought to be a stop sign for us to pay close attention and dig a little deeper. When we come to passages such as what we just read here in Hebrews chapter 7, uh, the, the, the human side of me, the, the fleshly side of me comes across something that is difficult, maybe a little bit dry, maybe a little bit, uh, what in the world is it talking about? And I want to just read past it and ignore it and not, not pay, it'll just get me to the part of, uh, of the hall of faith. Get me to Romans, or to, to Romans, <laughs> get me to Hebrews chapter number 11. I want to read about the hall of faith and, and, and I just try to hurry my way through. But here we have a message from God. If it is penned down in the Word of God, it is a message for you. I always kind of liken the Word of God to a love letter. And if you think about a man who perhaps he was, uh, he had taken off, he was called into, into war, and he goes off into a battle, and the night before the big fight, he pens a, a letter. He pours out his soul in this letter. He's not sure if he's ever going to see his wife again, not sure if he's ever going to get to hug his babies again, and he pours every bit of his heart and soul into this letter. He seals it up. He, he says a prayer. He puts it in the mail, and he takes it's, it's sent on its way, and some poor mailman has no idea the depth that he is carrying when he delivers this letter to this beautiful woman and her, her children. He enters into battle the next morning. He makes his way to the front lines, and he is in the thick of it, and God spares him. He makes it home after he's been in battle, and he, he comes in, and he, he's, he's all worn, and he's all fatigued, and he comes into the living room, and he looks off onto the coffee table there, and he sees the letter that he had written, and he says, oh, I was in such a state. I, I, I'm not sure I remember everything that I read. And so he walks over and he picks up this letter because he wants to reread it himself to see what was it that he had written to his wife and his children. He picks it up only to find that the envelope had not even been unsealed. Let's take another stab at it. Maybe the envelope was unsealed, but there were some pages that were read and other pages set to the side. And he asks his wife, did did you read it? Well, honey, you don't know how difficult it was being a single mother while you were gone. I simply did not have the time 
my letter that I wrote to you. You didn't take the time to read the letter I wrote to you. I was getting ready to enter into the darkest day of my life, and I poured my heart out. I wanted you to know everything that I could tell you. You didn't read it? I just, I was wanting to get to it. Just never got around to it. Or the other scenario where she read part of it and then she said, well, I was reading along and then that came to this one part that was just really difficult for me to understand what you were saying. And so I just put it to the side and I read the part that I liked. This is the way many people treat the word of God. And here at Liberty Bible Church, our emphasis is on the Word of God, the study of the Word of God. Please understand me. I don't want you to ever take my word for it. I'm a flawed individual on my best days. If if you take anybody's word for it, this is what I want you to take for it. And if you find where I'm wrong, I want you to come talk to me about it because I do not want to preach heresy. Don't take my word for it. My Bible tells us each individually to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. It does not say for you to let somebody else do all the study for you. Even the difficult passages. And so when we come to these passages, it's important for us to remember that there is information in here for us to apply. As I'm reading through these first 10 verses of of, uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 7, I am introduced to something that is going to take the remainder of the book of Hebrews. I get into this book, and I find something that is horribly overlooked in so many circles today. Here's the question that I kind of wanted to start everything off with this morning. Does Jesus qualify as our high priest. Now, I want you to think about it for just a moment because we refer to Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Okay, king, well, he is king of kings and lord of lords. We can kind of wrestle that one out. Uh, prophet, well, I, I guess he'd come and he did the the, the job of prophecy and profiting. Uh, okay, so maybe I can wrestle that one out. But priest, this is where we kind of Kind of, I just take the word for it. I just take people's word. Well, he's prophet, priest, and king. Well, what about that child that stands up one day and says, wait a minute, he was from the tribe of Judah, not Levi, and only the Levites were to be priests straight from the lineage of Aaron. Now we run into a problem, don't we? Because Jesus was not a Levite. He was not a descendant of Aaron. And so we wonder to ourselves, wait a minute, how can the writer of Hebrews refer to Jesus as a priest? Go back with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 2. As we've been making our way through the book of Hebrews, we've noted several different things. And if you remember in Hebrews chapter number 2, verse 17... It says, wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Jump now over to chapter number 4. Look at verse number 14. Seeing then 
that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. That's an interesting thing that the writer of Hebrews would refer to Jesus as a high priest. And don't forget that the writer is addressing these Jewish converts, these Hebrew Christians who were tempted to let go of the whole Jesus thing and return back to the uh, sacrifices and return to what the priests were trying to uh, were trying to teach and what the priests were wanting them to understand. And they were wanting to go back to sacrificial systems, back to making offerings, back to these things. And he says, wait a minute, we have a high priest. Jesus is our high priest, and undoubtedly someone was going to come out with, but he's not a Levite. And so the writer of Hebrews in chapter 5 starts talking about this whole Melchizedek thing. He says, I want to go deeper into this Melchizedek thing, but I need to slow down because you're dull of hearing, he says. And so then he goes into what we've been looking at over the past several weeks from chapter 5 into chapter number 6 about the pursuit of spiritual maturity. And so a lot is said in this passage that we need to take a moment and unpack. And I'm going to do the best that I can in the time allowed to try to expose just a little bit of Melchizedek, who he was, and how he typifies Christ. Now, I made a statement last week when we got into discussing Abraham that I I believe it's important for me to kind of reiterate. Past experiences are recorded for present-day application. And just like when we looked at Abraham at the conclusion of chapter number 6, we were, we were looking at Abraham, the focus was not on Abraham. It was on the faith that he had in the God that he served. And so the focus was on God the whole time, not on Abraham. That passage simply said Abraham had faith in God. Took us back to that. The focus Jesus, the focus, God. Same thing here in chapter 7. We can easily see Melchizedek and start to dissect who this Melchizedek character is and lose sight of who he's trying to typify. I used the example with the Sunday school teachers this morning, and I'll use it again. I have pictures of my wife. I've got one picture. She, uh, When I was uh, overseas, uh, she put a, uh, one of her wedding pictures uh, in uh, in my Bible, and I came across it one morning, and I'm like, oh, yeah, there it is. And so I, I hooked this, I was le- sleeping in a uh, bunk bed setup, and I had it in the uh, in the slats there, so I was able to look at it. I never fell in love with that picture. But I have fallen in love with the woman. So many people spend so much time focusing on pictures They lose sight of who they're picturing, right? Here we have a picture in Melchizedek. I want to take a look this morning at some of the different things that are introduced to us here. I'm going to look at two main things this morning. Who is Melchizedek and how do we apply it? That's really all I want to look at today. So there have been great debates over this individual 
And some present him as a pre-incarnate Christ. I do not believe that he is the pre-incarnate Christ. I understand how some can take that stance, but, and, and that's fine. But I don't believe it is. If you notice there, <clears throat> uh, look what it says in verse number 3 of chapter 7. It says, Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God. If Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ, why does the writer of Hebrews say that he was like? Okay, so that's just one little area of it. But again, this is not a, a, a description of Jesus. It's a description of someone who reveals something about Jesus. And so I want us to kind of anchor in on a couple things. They see this verse number three, and they see where it says, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And they attach that to mean that, okay, he did not begin, he did not end, he had no, he had, and so we're talking about someone who is supernatural. That's not what is being presented to us. Notice verse number six, but he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes and, uh, of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And so what it was talking, what it's trying to let us know is he steps out onto the pages of Scripture as if there was nothing else about him. And so all we know about Melchizedek is the little bit that we're given here in the book of Hebrews, Genesis chapter 14, and one passing comment in Psalm 110. That's the only place Melchizedek is mentioned. If I was to survey the uh, church today and I was to say, everyone write down the 10 most influential piece, people in the Word of God, I very seriously doubt anyone would have placed Melchizedek. Maybe a couple people might have. But to write down Melchizedek, that's, that's not what, you, I mean, you're going to think of David, you're going to think of Solomon, you're going to think of Abraham, you're going to think of Isaac, you're going to think of Jacob. You're, but Melchizedek's kind of one of those Eh, he's just a guy. And so let's look at this just a little bit closer. Look at Genesis chapter number 14 with me. And let's see what we find out about this Melchizedek. Back in Genesis chapter 14, we read about the, uh, the kings of the west and the kings of the east going to war. This is the first recorded war. And so they are battling with one another, and the king of Sodom was one of those kings that was captured, taken in, in captivity, and Lot, the nephew of Abraham and his family, was taken into captivity as well. And so Abraham gets uh, his group together, gets a, a group of people together, and they decide that they're going to go to free uh, Lot. And notice, uh, uh, notice what it says in uh, verse number 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his slaughter of uh, Kedarlomer. If anybody wants to do that better, come on up. And of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheva, uh, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies 
into thine thy hand. Now pause for just a minute and see what he's talking about about delivering the enemies. If you go back to chapter number chapter number fourteen, verse number twelve, look at verse number twelve, and they, this other uh, group of kings, took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshol, the brother of Aner. And these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, and he and his servants by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. Here we have Abram uh, calling together uh, some amazing number of 318 trained individuals. 318 in his household. Does anybody in here have 318 servants you can call on to grab a sword and shield and go into battle right now? This speaks to just how great of a man Abram was at this stage, just how much wealth and possession that he had. Some commentators say that based on the number of able-bodied men he could have taken into battle, he could have had easily somewhere up to a thousand or more individuals in his household. This is a wealthy man. This is a man of position and power, and he steps into this situation. And so we find this gentleman here, Melchizedek, coming out, ministering, bringing forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Let's see a little bit about him because we want to know why the comparison between Jesus and this Melchizedek. So let's see a few different similarities. Number one, his name is and position paint a picture. If you see there, it says this, uh, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, keeping your hand in Genesis, jump back over to uh, Hebrews chapter number seven. Notice what it says. uh, Verse number two, talking about Melchizedek, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all first being by interpretation king of righteousness. The name Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. That's what the name means. It's from the Hebrew Melech and Chezet. And we bring those two together to find Melchizedek, king of righteousness. But he was also had the title or the position of king of Salem. Now, Salem is from the Hebrew Shalom, which means peace. So he was the king of righteousness and the king of peace. But not only did he occupy those two, but he was also the priest of the Most High God. Now we find this interesting because who is the king of peace and the king of righteousness for us? Since God's word does not necessarily give us the information of, uh, uh, of who he gained his priesthood from or where it goes to, we automatically kind of zero in on this perpetuity of his priesthood. And this is what Hebrews is trying to talk about. And so we have this idea coming in of him being the king of righteousness and Jesus himself being the king of righteousness. As 
as we said before, the book of Revelation refers to him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the righteous one. He is the holy one. There is no one that is able to, uh, to bring righteousness about. Righteousness does not come as a result of my works. I cannot become righteous in and of my own abilities. I cannot be a righteous individual on my own merits. It must be through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus brings righteousness. He is the supplier of righteousness. Any other way of of attaining righteousness is going to leave me empty-handed, my friends. And what about peace? What 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 does the word say in Isaiah chapter 9? Prince of Peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. So here we have a picture in Melchizedek of Jesus. Melchizedek, King of Righteousness, King of Salem, King of Peace. Jesus is the King of Righteousness and the King of Peace. Priest of the Most High God simply means a representative on your behalf to God. So since God's Word does give us this information, but the interesting thing is you find Melchizedek in the book of Genesis. Have you ever read through the book of Genesis and noticed all the genealogies? Everybody that's really important, you know where they came from, right? (laughs) Except this guy. Just kind of steps into the page and then steps off of it. It's almost, Pastor, it's almost as if Maybe God just wanted him to be a picture. And so he didn't give any more information. You see, the ironical Levitical priesthood, it had a beginning. Didn't come along until the book of Exodus when we started to read through what took place there in the establishment of Aaron as priest in the Levitical system, and all the priests were to come through the lineage of Levi. But here's the thing is they were all temporary. The Levitical priesthood was only temporary, whereas Jesus' priesthood is one that lasts forever. Forever. In in Hebrews chapter 7, if you drop down uh, just a little bit, uh, you'll also notice, look at verse 17 with me, for he testifieth, and this is a quote from Psalm 110, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, a priest forever. Here in the church, church in generally speaking, we focus a lot on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and rightfully so. Paul refers to it as the gospel, how Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. But sometimes we ignore the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And from chapter 7 to the end of this book of Hebrews, you find what Christ's priestly work is doing now. He says you don't need to go back to the, pre- to the priestly sacrifices because Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father acting as your priest forever today. The moment we have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, 
He is our representative to God. This is something that does not get looked on very much. Think about this for just a moment. Did he die for your sins? Oh, that was pathetic. Yeah. Got a couple people in here saved. The rest of y'all still trying to read the Bible. Let's forget Hebrews. Let's go back to John chapter 3. No. Did God die for your sins? Did Jesus Christ die for your sins? Yes. Was he buried? Yes. Did he raise again? Yes. Today, when you mess up, when you fall, my friend, even though you have trusted Christ as your personal Savior, there is a high priest forever standing beside his father saying, I died for that one too. Don't forget his high priestly office. Don't forget the work that he is doing today. The work of saving you is done. And it's because of his completed work that he stands forever in heaven representing you to the Father. Wow. <laughs> That's beautiful. I want you to note just a few more things about Melchizedek before we make application to this. Melchizedek, he comes and he ministers. If you notice, uh, just read chapter 7 with me, verse number 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham after returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, going back to Genesis chapter 14, you can look at this some more on your own time. After Abram was successful in, you know, recovering Lot and his family and brought them all out, Melchizedek comes out and supplies to their needs. You see this? They were tired. They were weary from all that they had just been involved in. And the king of peace and the king of righteousness comes and supplies their refreshment. Whoa. But it doesn't just stop there. It makes sure to point out to you who was the superior. Did you see that? Look with me. Look at verse number uh, four. Now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi who receive the office of priesthood have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law that is out of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. Stop for just a minute. Pause for station identification. Okay? A Levite is not better than a Benjaminite. That's what it's saying. They were both brothers. They were equal, but the one tithe to the other. But continue going on. Verse number six, but he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. Who was over? Melchizedek, who served Melchizedek. 
He comes and he ministers to Abram and his people. He comes and he brings the sustenance for their weary bodies. He comes and he makes sure that they have what they need. And then he goes even a step further and he blesses them. And he says, blessed be you of the most high God. And then he blesses God for giving them victory. Now, in the Jewish mind, there was no one above Abraham except for God. That was it. Abraham was the patriarch. He was the top dog. And the writer of Hebrews says, um, Abraham tithed to him. He showed respect to him. He gave honor to him. Now, Kizedek comes and ministers. Look at, at Matthew chapter 20 with me. Matthew chapter number 20. Look at verse uh, 25 with me, if you would. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25 says, But Jesus called unto the, unto him, them unto him and said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. What a beautiful picture. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you see how this guy back here, he ministered to your patriarch? Jesus came and ministered for you. Now, there are many times in the Christian's life where we struggle. There are many times in the Christian's life where we have dark days and difficult times. And our Lord Jesus Christ comes and ministers to us in those moments. My friend, if you have never experienced the ministering hand of Jesus Christ, I'm sorry for you. It's only when you get that opportunity, it's only when you have that experience that you truly realize what the writer of Hebrews is here saying, the greater ministering to the lesser. Are, are, are any of you all better than God? I'm not. And yet, who time and time again ministers to whom? <laughs> I can bring my meager sacrifice, my meager offerings, my meager attempts. I, he is the one that ministers to me. I go to sleep every night. Guess who keeps me alive? There's nothing special about me where I lay my head down at night and I go, okay, I need to make sure I do this and I get this done and I do this done. And uh, you know what? I probably ought to just stay awake. I'm going to sleep with one eye open just to make sure that I don't die in the middle of the night. No. 
He ministers to me on a regular basis. Abraham was served by Melchizedek, yet Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And this reveals his greatness. I mean, think about it. Melchizedek uh, comes onto the scene. Abraham had enough people to go and and, uh, get his family back. But he worships the other. Can I just let you know for just a minute? Here's a rabbit trail just for a second, just a little side trail. I I have conversations with folks sometimes who, like a dog with a Frisbee, want to fight me on whether they should tithe or not. Now, you know me. If you've been around me for any amount of time, I don't talk about money. But can I just say, if you have to fight, how much do you think he's worthy? Well, he doesn't need my money. No, he doesn't, but is he worthy of it? Abraham recognized Melchizedek and that he deserved honor. He deserved praise. He deserved recognition. He deserved the respect, and he brought it to him willingly. I think it would do us some good to see how wonderful he is. Recognize it and start to pay him the respect he is due. Nothing to do with me, nothing to do with the church, nothing to do with any of that. Well, preacher, if I could get behind something, can you just get behind him? And before you go, well, you know, pastor just wants me to put money in a tithing envelope. No, no, I don't. As a matter of fact, keep your money in your wallet. Give yourself to him. You can hold on to that $10 bill. Give yourself to Jesus, and he'll have the whole wallet. Give yourself to Jesus. He'll have your whole schedule. Give yourself to Jesus. He'll have every bit of your attention. I'm not after your wallet. I'm after you for his sake. Let's look at just a couple of the pieces of application to this. Number one, we see the promises of God completely on display. Now, when we were last week looking in chapter number six and talking about how Abraham, um, he he trusted and he had faith in the one that made the promises, here we read about the one uh, who was given the promises we need to understand what promises we're talking about. Let's just look at two. Because apart from these two, you need no other. Number one, righteousness, affording fellowship with God through the atonement. That's a promise of God. You, my friend, cannot have fellowship with God because of your unrighteousness. What fellowship has light with darkness? Righteousness with unrighteousness. You cannot have fellowship there. But because of Jesus Christ, you, my friend, are afforded the righteousness of Christ and can now have fellowship with God. That's a promise. The second is peace. 
peace with God, or maybe a way of saying it would be rest for your soul through forgiveness. These are promises that are found only in Jesus' high priestly work, only there. The Levitical priesthood had to go in and do this day after day, year after year. But Jesus did it once. Done. Completely finished. No more need of any other sacrifice. These previous priests could only provide a temporary relief, but the relief we find with Jesus Christ is permanent forever. What a beautiful thing that is. I want you to notice the second thing here, not only promises of God, but He rightly deserves our offering. The one who provides us deserves our admiration. What have you given to God? Well, preacher, I put money in the offering. I already talked about that. He wants you. Now, undoubtedly, someone's going to, oh, thank God, I don't have to tithe anymore. (laughs) He doesn't have you. Abraham gave this willingly. Took nothing for himself. Read your Bible. Too often we make sure that we've got ours and try to give him whatever's left over. Think about it from our schedules. Well, I've got to do this, 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 I've got to get the kids here, got to get the wife here, got to get the husband there, got to get these things done around the house. Uh, I wonder how much time I can give God this week. I guess I'm just too busy. wonder what would happen if we started that the other direction. Let's see. Here's my week. I have nothing on the schedule. Okay. I'm going to give God this time, 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 this time. What's left over for me? Maybe if we start there, we'd never have to worry about, well, I was too busy to make it. I was too busy to read my Bible this week. Made sure to catch the Super Bowl, but I didn't get time to read my Bible. I made sure to have plenty of time for the boss's overtime, but didn't get time to read my Bible. Whoa. I think it's time that we see how great Jesus is. Jesus is forever our great high priest. Not only is he the high priest that goes to God for us, but he's also the high priest that comes to us and ministers to us in our time of need. And so what about you? Let me ask you, have you heard the gospel? How that you, my friend, just like me, are a sinner in need of a Savior. But he came died for you, rose again, and is forever interceding on your behalf before the throne of God. Have you heard that? Have you applied it? Have you realized the wonder of our forever high priest? Have you realized that? 
Think about it for just a moment. The one who died, was buried, and rose again, he didn't just leave you high and dry from that point on. What did he say? Lo, I am with you always. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. What a wonderful God. What a wonderful high priest. He presents us before the Father. And He comes to our aid today. Today. This is our high priest. I don't need a priest anymore. I've got Jesus. I don't need to confess anything to anybody. When I have Jesus, I confess to Him. I don't have to wonder what uh, is going to happen with my future because my high priest, he took care of the work. I don't have to figure out how I need to, uh, to, to earn anything because my high priest did it all. I've got a wonderful high priest. Do you? Do you? Psalm 85.10 says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. <laughs> Man struggled to be right before God. You're left without peace in your own merits. But because of Christ, I am made right and I can be at peace. And that comes together only in Jesus. Have you applied it to your life? Father, we come before You as humbly as we can. Father, asking You that You would work in us, opening our eyes, opening our hearts. Father, I'm not too foolish to think that every individual is born again by the Spirit of God. I realize, Lord, that there are many different types of ground that the seed is scattered upon. I, I realize that. And so, Father, I, I know that there's a great possibility that there are people here born again by the Spirit of God. I also realize that there's the possibility that there are some who are not born again by the Spirit of God. They're wrapped in their rags of religion, trying to earn their way, trying to gain some sort of merit. And they have not trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ our great high priest. Father, I ask that You would speak to hearts today. That You would convict those who do not know You as Savior. Draw them closer unto Yourself. Expose their need of You in their life. For those who have grasped this concept, but perhaps just needed a reminder, of the fact that You are still at work in heaven. Always representing us to the Father. 
always ministering unto our needs. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to be reminded daily of Your Son. What wonderful, wonderful things He has done for us and continues to do. Use us now, we pray, in this time. Call men and women to Yourself. For it's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen.